lifetimes of listening. Probably the best thing I ever did was my my rock band. I started doing Flocorico, and basically it's just the, the cultural dance of Mexico. Let's back up. I toured with Ray Charles for about seven months. And mariachi changed my whole perspective, especially with music. Before I start any tour, I listen to the band's music relentlessly. Lifetimes of Listening. Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. It's a podcast that seeks to understand why music is important in people's lives. Now, today's episode is really a great one. It's about music on the road. And uh, several of the musical memories that people have shared with us in the last couple of years describe a time when they were performing with other musicians on a tour, on a musical tour. So that's what today's episode is all about. Brian, I'm curious, do you have any stories uh, that you could share uh, about a time when you were touring with a musical group? I, I feel like there, there are a lot. I think the one that really leapt out to me when I was thinking about this was a choir tour in France, just spending a, um, 10 days going to you know each new place. You'd go to a hotel and you'd set up and the next day you'd sing a concert in the morning or you would uh, travel in the morning and you'd do a concert at night and doing that night after night after night for about 10 days in a foreign country and the ways that I, I remember um, getting lost in one little small town, or I left my music back at the at the at the church in a town that was a pedestrian-only place, and running back to get my music, and then trying almost not finding the bus to get back on the bus to get to the next town, and all of those kinds of stories. It was just a it was a remarkable time. How, how about you? Have you ever? Do you have this kind of touring? I've, I've done some touring with uh, groups um, out of Tucson or groups affiliated with the University of Arizona when I was a, uh, a full-time student here. There was one particular day on a 17-day tour with the University of Arizona Vocal Jazz Ensembles. Now, this was a, a great experience, a great group of people. We were at uh, Yellowstone National Park. We actually went there, saw some of the things that you see at Yellowstone National Park, and then the next day we had a, a gig in a in a beautiful I can't remember the town it's right near Yellowstone National Park a really well known place, and we had a performance and we're a group of uh, maybe a dozen singers plus a, a combo supporting the piano bass drums guitar so forth and so on and maybe a sax player, and we had a performance in one of the most beautiful settings I've ever been in my life a, a church that had kind of an A frame window at the behind the sanctuary, behind the, uh, at the end of the sanctuary. Spectacular setting. We're really psyched for this performance. And somebody dropped the ball, and two people showed up for our performance. <laughs> and, and we'd been performing for, for high schools where we'd have, or at colleges. We'd have hundreds of people. And suddenly we're performing in one of the most beautiful settings you can ever imagine. We're really primed, and two people are in this church to hear us perform. And somehow... I felt like we gave as good a performance or maybe even better that day than we had at any time on the tour, just because it was just for the music and those two people who made the, <laughs> who went to the trouble to show up. Uh, it was just a wonderful uh, memory of mine of, of performing, really knowing it's about the music and the fact that we have two people who, who get this special treat 
was great. So that's my touring yeah. story. <laughs> there are others, <laughs> but that's one that stands out for me today. Just loved it. Well, uh, well I'm really excited about our guest today. He's uh, somebody that I knew, got to know through his books, and I've read several of his books, and I've uh, I've probably read parts of all of his books, most of which are celebrated. I also began to realize about six or seven years ago that he's on a lot of documentaries. He's, he's, the, he's, you know, if it's a jazz documentary that, that, uh, that where the crew went through New York City, they probably, you've, you know, f- filmed uh, at uh, him. So our guest today is Ashley Kahn. Ashley Kahn is a music historian and journalist and a Grammy award-winning writer about music. I didn't realize you could write well enough to do that, but you, there is a, a liner note category. He's, his many achievements also include a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Jazz Journalist Association, and he's currently a visiting arts professor at New York University. Um, and something I learned about him, though, in a conversation is that he, before he began working as a writer, he was a um, tour manager. And it's in that capacity that we're going to speak to him today after the break. Ashley, welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. We are really, really glad to have you here. And it's great to be here, Brian. I um, uh, I think that anybody that sees that your name is associated with this today is going to expect a different kind of thing from you because you're known as a writer about John Coltrane, uh, Carlos Santana, Miles Davis. Um, but what we'd like to talk to you a little bit about today is your your career before you became a jazz journalist, where you were working on, um, among other things, on music tours. And um, how did that start for you? How'd that, how'd that begin? Well, thank you for having me again, Brian. And uh, I should say that, you know, for me, um, I was very dissatisfied at the, uh, um, shall we say, the onset of my career, if I can be so generous, um, with the idea of writing. I just was not happy with the music that was out there, the roles that music writers seemed to have. Um, This was the beginning of MTV and then MTV News. Um, uh, So it, it wasn't just the idea of the writing and the journalism, but also the way that it was kind of set up to serve an industry that, um, I was kind of uh, disappointed in. I was not happy with the way music was sounding in the 80s. And, and uh, you know, um, uh, over time, I, I decided that the idea of being there where artists and audiences meet, you know, that idea of that magic moment when music hits the ear, um, on a, in a live situation, not recorded, is really what I was most interested in. And I had been involved with music production, concert production, doing events in college a little bit, um, and I was very enamored with that. I mean, I love that feeling of when 8 o'clock hits and you've been struggling all day to make sure all the elements are in the right place, the performers have arrived, they're happy. The uh, um, 
you know, the technical side of things is going smoothly. The uh, audience has arrived. They're in their seats. And that's, that's really, you know, uh, what, what was triggering my, you know, uh, what was inspiring me the most, those magic moments. And um, as a result, you know, I got involved with uh, uh, a bunch of different companies in New York, primarily George Ween. And George Ween, you know, who's famous for having started Newport Jazz Festival, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the whole idea of sponsored festivals, yeah. you know, um, planting the seed uh, basically for a whole industry that exists today. Um, he has hired almost everybody <laughs> who ends up in production or tour management or concert festival production in uh, at least in New York, but in many parts of the world too, someone has—I mean, almost everyone has had their moments with George Ween, including myself. So, um, and then it led from there. You know, and the next thing I know, I'm working uh, at Central Park Summer Stage in the very beginning of that series, which now has its own stage has ticketed events and non-ticketed events, major artists play there, you know. But in the first couple of years I was there, and that's where I met the uh, the management company behind uh, uh, Lady Smith Black Mombaso. Now, these were the heady, explosive days of of a term that we are not supposed to use anymore, but back then we called it world music. You know, and the 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 um, uh, in, incredible popularity of African music, especially South African music, was suddenly in the wind. You know, you couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere. And Paul Simon, right around that same time, had done the Graceland album. Yeah. You know, and so it was not just the flavor of the month. It was the sound of the eighties. Oh, oh yeah. I, I... So I uh, I was in I was actually in a community jazz orchestra that was kind of an all ages thing and I remember uh, driving in a van with a bunch of old guys like some like professionals and uh, one of the whoever was driving the van popped in Lady Smith's first album to be released in the U S on cassette into the thing and it was sort of like what you know that that like my my hearing changed. I, I came home, I scrambled to get Graceland, you know, like that, like that was a big moment for me. I, I don't know, I was like maybe 85-ish, whenever it was, but that, that was just a, that landed like a brick. It, 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 the whole culture kind of pivoted is how it was feeling. And suddenly all that disappointment that I had in the early 80s, I was so inspired, re-inspired by music in a, in a general sense and found myself not in the van, you know, not working up the, the usual kind of um, uh, pecking order, you know, that, that goes into this industry, that this industry is known for. But I was suddenly on the plane and in the buses, you know, playing to 4,000, 6,000 seat halls. No small clubs, you know, yeah. and this was Lady Smith Black Mombasa would spin off of the Graceland tour for 
let's say, two weeks and then reconnect with Paul. So I would be with Paul and his traveling circus of, (laughs) you know, 60-plus people, and then myself and a sound man with uh, an act that had the easiest load-in of any act I've ever worked with because they're an a cappella group, (laughs) you know. There was no instrumentation whatsoever. You know, the only thing we, we carried was splitters for the mic stands so that each mic stand could actually have a double boom action going on. That was the extent of our equipment. You know? <laughs> and 10 of the loveliest, most spirited um, singers I've ever had the uh, honor to work with, um, Many, most of whom are gone now. Some because of the violence that that still takes so place in during South that Africa. time in the 80s that you really became part of the, the the life of touring musicians and what that was about. You mentioned earlier, you said I'm just trying to revisit the phrase something about the 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 kind of connection between audience and performer. That moment when that begins. Are there are there any particular instances of that where you saw performers and audiences connected in a particular way? I, I mean, I have some of my own that I. Well, the, the, you know, the, 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 without plan, without any sort of, you know, uh, effort on my part, I found myself working with one of the most amazing groups that drew from a, a deep, deep spiritual well in their music. No surprise that this Zulu all-male choir, known as Ladysmith Black Mombasso, basically came out of church. I mean, this was praise music primarily, um, you know, of this certain uh, uh, variety of Christianity, you know, that um, I, you know, being a nice Jewish boy from from born in the Bronx, you know, what what do I know from this? But this was music that carried good news, you know, as music from the church, music of the church will do. Um, This is music that was born in the extreme political oppression that was apartheid in South Africa. Um, I mean, this was an old Zulu choir, so they were um, Africans who were, you know, definitely uh, in many ways getting their asses kicked by the system there. And yet their music was about um, unity and happiness and, um, you know, overcoming uh, all the obstacles that they were facing. It wasn't, it wasn't social protest music. It was religious music. And it wasn't just performance music. It wasn't entertainment music. It was music that was meant to instill a reaction, a connection from, from the audience. From Absolutely. Sort of I mean, yeah. you know what's funny is that, uh, I, I, I mean, I will not say that it's, it wasn't performance music. Um, it, there was a performance quality. You know, it's like... Um, we are very proud of who we are, and we're wearing these matching outfits. And they had a way of dancing that was called touch-toe or scatamia um, that uh, was all about um, um, a, a, a kind of, um, you know, there, there's this Zulu tradition of stomping, you know, of, of stomping hard on the ground. But when they were working for white-owned landowners or white-owned gold mines, etc., and they were in their dormitories, you know, which were basically, uh, 
you know, a cot and a, and a, and a you know, a pail to piss in, you know, they had to figure out a way of dancing and being true to their culture and do it very delicately. So they would bring their feet down really fast and then stop just before they hit the ground and touch the ground. And this becomes part of their dancing style. And they would, co 10 guys doing this in unison. I mean, I'm sorry, move aside temptations. You know, <laughs> this was amazing yeah, to watch, I'm amazing sure. to hear. So there absolutely was a performance aspect to it. And we would try and support it with the right lighting and sounds, etc. That's the other thing I should add is that, you know, it wasn't just being there guiding them from place to place. I had a very participatory role in trying to make sure that... Um, you know the 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 technical support, the lighting, the sound, the the show itself, how the show developed over time, because if you have ten singers, you need an arc to the show. You need to come and and thank God for Joseph Shabalala, who was the founding member of the group. His English had developed to the point where he was feeling much more confident when I entered the picture. It used to be that it was the tour manager's role to get up there and explain their music. There was no way I wanted to do that, you know. <laughs> sure. L little white guy from yeah, the not States. Being from their no, culture, their no, tradition. Sure. You know, I, 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 it just didn't feel right. But that had been the case beforehand. And um, thank God, Joseph, you know, it's just, it sends the whole wrong message. You yeah, know, sure, this sure. is their story and they should yeah, be telling yeah. it. So if, if I may, I just want to back up a little sure. bit. Just tell me, I'm just curious because I don't know. Did you grow up in a musical family? You, you, did you, were you fortunate as I was to be exposed to lots of different types of music? Were you, were you asked to take music lessons as a child? What really spurred your, uh, this very serious lifelong uh, well, in answer to those specific questions, no, 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 and no. <laughs> this was, uh, you know, um, they're, they're musicians like to say, you know, uh, here I am being a, an adult whose career was chosen for me by an eight-year-old. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> and 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 that that was the case with me too. I think when I was eight, nine, ten years old, somewhere around there, I discovered my father's record collection, pop radio, etc. And then you're hooked. Yeah, you know? sure, sure. There's, there's no going. Some back. of us are touched by music in a way that that yeah. guides us to whatever we wind up doing. I, in life, I, yeah. I would say that you know, for many people. That happens, even if they don't end up as music professionals. And I'm not saying that just playing music. I mean in the business somehow. That um, even if they end up being the ones who are religiously, you know, checking out who's coming through town and making sure that they got those front row tickets, they are, in, they are a music professional too. They're involved in it. There's no way music can happen without an audience. Right. So right. I include the whole community in, in this. Have you ever heard the term musicking? There's a well-known book. Uh, I can't think of the author's name. Uh, right Smart. This book really touched Christopher me. Smart, is it? Am I, am I, I may be wrong about that. <laughs> the concept that all of us who are connected with music in any way, the usher in a concert hall, the audience, the people backstage, the technicians, it's musicking. 
it, Christopher Small. Well, you know, for me, it's it's it, it, to go further with that. It's the sense of community. Um, there's a lot of musicians, you know, of of um, in the jazz world anyway, a lot of African American musicians who speak about um, the role of the church, you know, in black church music, gospel, as we call it, um, being such a um, an important training ground uh, within the black community for musicking, you know. With the emphasis in this kind of separation or, or doing away with the separation between artists and audience, which is the traditional Western way of, you know, there they are up on the stage. And here we are. Right. Yeah. And here I am, you know, usually, you know, having just come out of COVID on the opposite end of a, you know, yeah. a, of a laptop or a TV or something, you know, that the separation is always there. And then the black church experience, you know, is this idea of that there is no separation, that it's all one. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we, we've, uh, we wanted you to respond to some of the stories we've collected. And I've, I've got three stories. Uh, they're all, as it happens, uh, they were all professional or semi-professional at the time of um, music on the road. Our first, uh, our first story uh, by Tom McElhaney's currently is a local history teacher in a, in a high school. I, I met him because he is, uh, there's a, a thing called Geeks Who Drink. It's essentially a trivia show that, that is, uh, you know, across the country, but he's the best trivia master in, in you know, in a pub setting that I've, I've ever encountered. And uh, my friends and I regularly, you know, wherever, wherever he's going. But um, then I discovered that he had a career in music. And so I, let me share his story. Uh, my name is Tom McElhaney, a high school history teacher and failed rock star. Probably the best thing I ever did was my, my rock band. 13 years in a band called Troy's Bucket. It was a ska punk band. Did three albums. We did two tours. And... Never got signed. Everybody grew up and bought houses and had kids, and that was the end of that. <laughs> and that was the greatest time of my life, really. There's drums, bass, guitar, vocals, two trombones, two trump no, three trombones and two trumpets at that point. So I had an Explorer. We put four guys in that and five guys in this other car, and I had a U-Haul on my on the back of my Explorer, we put all our stuff in and we just drove city to city and went into these little tiny clubs. Sometimes it was basically empty. Sometimes it was jam packed. So I'll give you an example of a bad show. In Seattle, we played at the same show or the same club that Nirvana played their first show at. And they didn't have a local band. They had a band from Alaska and us. So there were zero fans. We played to the other band and we played to the bartenders. And they were like, don't worry about it. Nirvana only played to the other band and the bartenders too. So you never know what you're going to run into. We even played the crappy shows like they were great shows, which paid off sometimes. In Portland, they booked us at a, it was kind of like the Rialto Theater. It was an old movie theater they tore the seats out of, turned it into a concert hall. And... We were playing with some local band that was not ska at all. Uh, it was some kind of gothy 
you know, emo band. Kids were all in eyeliner and, you know, black clothes. And they looked like they were there to have a bad time. You know, and we were happy-go-lucky ska guys, you know. So we went out there and we said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend like they're having the time of their lives, even if they're just standing there with their arms crossed staring at us. And we played harder than we've ever played before. And we're running around, jumping off drum risers, and just going crazy. And by the third song, they had formed a giant mosh pit. There were guys stage diving. It was one of the craziest shows we ever played. And we sold enough merch at that show to these goth kids to get us through the next four or five cities we went to. Gas and food and hotels and all that stuff. So, you know, you're going to have bad nights. You're going to have good nights. And you're going to have bad nights you can turn into good nights. (laughs) Great story. You know, I mean, it, it, it just goes to show that you, you know, you, you can try on paper to predict, you know, what, who's going to come and do your demographic studies, uh, et cetera, you know. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole idea of music creating its own magic moments, you know, is really, uh, that, that's a great example of it coming together like it did, you know. I really enjoyed that. Also, Portland's a great town. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you know, I'm I'm thinking about this from a variety of you know angles, like you know, what was the size of, you know of the of what is you know the capacity and you know what you know what sort of uh, I wonder what the sound was like there. But they you know old old movie houses have a nice vibe to them. Yeah, and they yeah. they you know they no matter who's performing. There's a nice sort of presentation. Usually, sometimes there's even a proscenium, you know, yes. kind of stage. But uh, but this sounds like they they just went for it, yeah, <laughs> and and were inspired by themselves and their own music, and that's what it's really about, you know. If you can put the energy out there, and all you need is a little bit of that feedback loop happening, reaction from the audience, well, that pushes things up on the stage with the band, which then brings a little more reaction from the audience. And then you have this thing going boom, 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 you know, and it just builds. And obviously that was one of those magic nights. I'm sure that that story is being shared by one of the audience members, you know, <laughs> yeah. now with their the best, kids. Or best show they ever, or if we ever get to interview them, we'll say, oh, there's this time, the Troy's Bucket. I don't know, it's yeah, like this yeah. local band. Well, hearing, hearing your reaction to that, just reinforces in my mind what you were saying earlier, the paradigm of performer up here, audience down here. When that is, when we cross that plane, when performers and audiences really connect, there is something spectacular that happens. Um, Yeah, so next, I spoke a couple of years ago. It was very early in our project, two or three years ago, that I spoke with Jason Carter. So Jason's a local trumpeter um, on the faculty here at the University of Arizona School of Music, but he shared with me several interesting things about his days of touring with Ray Charles way back, I think, in the 90s. So here, let's listen to a a musical memory from Jason Carter. My name is Jason Carter. Uh, I remember an occasion, let's back up, I toured with Ray Charles for about seven months, 1990, 91 era. So we used to be able, we used to have to buy our own hotel rooms. So I'm touring the world uh, in 1990. You know, and I'm getting paid $750 a week. And every time I, we go to a hotel in Germany or wherever, 
we have to pay the hotel for a night stay or two nights stay or whatever it is. So we would room up, man. We'd get two people, three people to a room to save money. And uh, once in Japan, uh, I was hanging out with the promoter. We were drinking sake at the bar. And I said, hey, uh, you know, I want to thank you very much because the room rates that you gave us are really reasonable. $35 a night in Japan? He looked at me strange. He said, what do you mean, $35? All those rooms were totally comped. And here, the whole band, the Raylettes, were all paying 35 bucks a night to the management. When I found that out, uh, I remember going up into a room with the manager. So I just said, uh, I'm, you know, are you going to be coming back? And I put an envelope, no. That's it, no. I didn't say a reason or anything, because I didn't want to cause any, any rips. But anyway, uh, a few nights later, a lot after the last gig, Ray decided that he's going to have take pictures with anybody in the band. You know, he, he never does this, right? But this is like the last tour last night. So I said, yeah, definitely I want my picture taken with him. So I went up there. I waited in line. And, uh, you know, there's a big line. He, he, I came over. I sat next to him. He put his hand over, and he didn't find me. So he lowers his hand. Then he found it. He said, boy, I didn't know you were so short. He both smiled. Chick took the picture. I left. Cool. Never saw him again. Cool. <laughs> That's kind of cool, you know. So I played taller than I am, I guess, you know. I thought he was going to say something like he got charged for the photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, well. that's, uh, I can say his name now, Joe Adams. <laughs> that's a that's typical Joe Adams kind of story. He was Ray Charles's longtime manager. You know, and he, 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 he had a way of negotiating where he would listen to any offer or whatever, even if it was like for charity or whatever. And he'd say, uh, uh, Ray gets paid. Ray gets paid. And that's all he would say. Yeah. <laughs> that was his negotiating tactic <laughs> and his final bottom line and his opening statement as well. You know, I mean, this is, you know, the road is filled with these kind of stories. Solomon Burke uh-huh. used to uh, charge his own band members for water on oh. their bus tours down through the south in the middle of summer. <laughs> you know? Wow. I know. I mean, but but the idea is I'm putting this thing together, you know, yeah. and there's this... Uh, almost medieval approach to the idea of band leaders, you know, a droit de senior kind of thing where whatever happens within my collective here, I make the rules, right. you know, and if you're not happy with it, that's okay. Yeah. You know, fly yeah. yourself home, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the idea here is that, you know, even to this day, it's kind of the Wild West out there. You know, and the idea of a music business as if it's a business with its kind of standards and rules, et cetera, can can sometimes when especially when you're like overseas or whatever, all that stuff flies out the window. So there are certain 
tricks of the trade, shall we say, and how to prepare yourself and what to do if you're working with a promoter or a producer of a concert who you've never worked with before and no one and you all the other people that you know in the business don't know them. So, you know, at that point you want all your money up front, etc. And also within certain traveling organizations, you know, raise this traveling legend, and he's very, very self-aware of his stature, etc. And so hearing that, uh, you know, that the manager actually charged the band for, you know, this incredible rate of $35, you know. <laughs> I mean, that that is funny. It's funny, it's a little bit sad, but it's also, you know, that's the way the business runs. You know, you at NYU, we, we hear, we, you and you encounter a lot of people that just would love for an opportunity. I mean, Jason was right out of college, and he, I guess Ray Charles, I, I, I've heard this story, you know, James Brown, I think, used to do this, um, um, the, the Maynard Ferguson uh, Orchestra used to, like, they'll, they'll go to the, some of the top schools, and they'll grab the best improvisers or whatever and throw them in the band, you know, these young kids, and, uh, and I wonder... Uh, and I've had some friends that have, have done that, and I, I wonder now, as, as we're talking, how you prepare them. Like, what do you what do you say to them to make sure they're not so deer in the headlights, naive as they're well, entering into this business? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. I mean, there's many uh, programs now that do what are called career building, you know, kind of training. And uh, but back in the day, you know, we're talking about even in the '90s. Most music schools are all about training, performance training. Right, right. You know, learning your instruments, learning the history, learning you know how to communicate in a performance or recording you know kind of situation, and that's it. You know, and then goodbye, and don't let the door hit you. Yeah. You know, you're on your own. You know, oh, you need help with placements? Well, you know, did we train you? No, you know, but you know a whole bunch of other musicians and you know the community, you know, um, so there's value in that. But, uh, you know, this is why at Berkeley, at, you know, um, uh, all the New York schools you know the career training is now becoming part of it it is a part of our curriculum now too we we really fold in trying to make sure that we're not just throwing throwing people out there but this this sounds like uh, i i had friends that were at at um uh, ut uh denton you know the north texas which is i i forget the current name of it but uh uh, you know that would have loved to have jumped on the tour bus with Ray Charles and would have done so without blinking. You know, you know Again, I mean, at this point with Ray gone, we'd say I would pay. Oh, exactly. I would pay exactly. to be yeah. in that band. Right. You know, uh-huh. Joe Adams knew that. Yeah. Now we yeah. can laugh and look back at that and say, "Oh, that's so old school." Uh-huh. Uh, no, it's school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, I spoke um, briefly to the best friend of a talented drummer that was on a James Brown tour in 2001. And so this is hearsay from him, but he was telling me these horror stories of the way that James Brown in, in 2001, was, I mean, by then I think he was relatively past some of the, some of his most difficult times and the way he was treating musicians and the, and the guy took like, you know, did one tour, whatever his minimal contract was, and then was out. And this is a, this is a 
kid that, a, you know, a 20 year old that wanted to be a funk drummer and in with James Brown, you know, and uh, couldn't couldn't handle the all of the extra <laughs> that comes with being on a tour. Our, our last story um, is a student. Every once in a while, you, you get those students that are kind of like your favorite students and they're terrible students. <laughs> you know, and uh, and this this kid was one of them um, because he was the kind of kid that would would say, can I just not turn in work for the next month because Dwight Yoakam just hired me to tour with him? That's it is so Christian uh, Christian is now a successful audio engineer, touring audio engineer, and um, works largely with largely in country in part because so many country stars have have. Um, liked his work and so he's gotten tied into to that but he does all all things he's probably run sound in every club in tucson or near about by this point because he's uh tucson and yeah my name is christian Giroux. i'm a live touring audio engineer and um, sound designer in the touring world i'm before i start any tour i listen to the band's music relentlessly um and one of the first questions i ask the band or music director is how do you want the record? How do you want the live show to sound? Do you want it to sound like a record? Do you want it to sound like a record with some oomph? Do you want it to not sound like the record? Uh, you know, what what is your vision for how you want the show to sound? I don't have any ego in it. I mean, they're hiring me to bring my brain and skills to the show, but at the end of the day, they have a vision. And if I'm not meeting that, then I'm not the best person for the position. And I have no ego in that. You know, I, I want to make sure that they're happy at the end of the day with what's going on and that their live show is what they want it to be. You know, that's really ultimately what I'm there for. You know, I, I met, funny enough, I met my wife at a concert and, uh, you know, we've been married for a couple of years now, have a have a kid. And for a lot of people, you know, that there's a musical memory right there that had I not been to that concert or been working that show, I would have never met my wife. And at this point, my life would have been in a much different position. So in my opinion, and I think my wife might attest to this, you know, I, I only tour probably three to four months a year. Um, the rest of the time I am home, but, and I would tour more, uh, if I didn't have a kid, but I would say during those three or four months, uh, and maybe my wife will disagree with me, but it's really like being a single parent. You know, there's a financial support of your significant other who's gone, but for maybe, and maybe for her, she might disagree or agree. I'm not sure, but, um, you know, I'm, yes, I'm basically sending money back home while I'm out working, but she's really taking care of, you know, the house and the kid and, and so on and so forth. Um, I've heard, Friends in the business compare it, whether or not I agree, they compare it to like kind of being in the military, you know, it's like when you're on a deployment for three or four months where no matter what you do, unless it's a dire family emergency, you cannot come home Um, because your wife or kid misses you. That doesn't mean you can just necessarily hop on a plane and miss five days of shows that you'd you'd be off the tour very quick um, or replaced. And so I think that's kind of a hard part of the experience is, you know, being away from being away from home can be tough. Luckily I'm in an opportunity in a position where the artist I work for uh, lets me fly home weekly. So I am able to be home often. That's not always the case. Not every artist is that courteous and, or had, you know, has that position to be able to do that because 
just of logistics. So it, it really depends. But I would definitely compare it the most to prop, you know, especially for my wife to being like a single parent. You know, she she has to handle everything at at home while I'm gone. So I applaud her for it. That's for sure. I thought it was moving in one direction, and then suddenly it becomes about the 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 balancing act. You know, that is, I mean, you know, being on the road is tough. It is tough. Um, I, there were times when I had a girlfriend. I, I, I was married before um, I, I went on the road, but I could not have imagined being married while while doing my touring. Um, and a lot of it is this idea that, you know, um, uh, until you're married, you know, any relationship requires that consistency, that that idea of like being there for someone else and vice versa. And that that's what a relate human interaction is all about. The road is tough. It I've seen it tear apart more relationships than you know bring to than bringing together people um uh unfortunately and and but that's just my my experience um there are a lot of people who you know have been able to survive it and uh the you know the idea of um factoring that into the 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 domestic situation and and making and working one's life around that um i remember talking to carlos santana once and he was talking about um uh you know back in the day when santana was still flying high and him and deborah his first wife um just started to have their kids um and it would come time for him to go and get on the bus and he said he never heard kids draw faster or harder with Crayola crayons than at that point. In other words, they were doing everything they could to distract themselves before daddy went out the door, you know. And he said, and I, I can still hear the, the scratching of those crayons, you know. And it was such, a, you know, chilling image, you know, to, to realize how heartbreaking that is to everyone involved you know so hearing hearing him talk about this i mean i feel for him you know and uh god bless him and god bless their you know their relationship that he has a woman who understands this the fact that they met at a music event hopefully helps i I remember reading um about johnny cash's touring schedule in the late 50s and i remember reading that and thinking, you know, and it's, I know that a lot of people tell the story of Johnny Cash in the late 50s when he's becoming an addict um, as, um, as a sort of, you know, it's kind of like a fait accompli and it's very easy to tell that story backwards. But I remember just thinking about the logistics of, there was a couple of years where he did 300 shows in like 200 cities. Uh, and, and just sitting with that information and just thinking, in a year, you know, like that, that's his yearly thing of, of traveling for a couple of years doing that. And of course, you're going to be a drug addict. And of course, you're going to have a divorce. And of course, you're going to have like, how, how else do you get through that as well, a human coping being mechanisms? You know, we, we actually have vocabulary for it now, right? You know, we have ways of we have people who professionally help other people, you know, 
um, with, a, 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 you know, all sorts of tools and, and um, experience and, and, like I said, and the language to describe what everyone's going through. For many, many years in the, the rise of popular culture that gave birth to the touring industry, you know, there was nothing out there, no support system or way of even talking about what it's like to be on that bus as the world is blurring past your eyes and you just feel so rootless and no place to put your feet and disconnected from people back home. You know, it's it's a challenge. And that's, like I said, also part of the career building um, aspect that is built into the educational uh, support thing that's going on now in music schools, you know. You can't turn telling telling eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds that you cannot turn every night into a Saturday night. You know, even though it feels great because you've just done a great show, because then every morning feels like Monday morning. You know, I mean, you start with good advice, but then you realize there's actually you know ways of like dealing with this. You know. And thank God for Zoom. This may also this may also like a trivial point. I often find myself thinking about touring, whether it's touring musicians, um, professional athletes who know what they're going to be doing every night, say for the next year. In some cases, more than that, they know that on the thirteenth of February they're going to be in Chicago for a show at seven thirty. Well, what if the thirteenth of February comes and at seven thirty in Chicago you just don't feel like doing a show that <laughs> night <Yeah. laughs> that you've right. done every night consecutively for months and months? That that's that's part of what you're committing to as a touring musician. It's just that you're going to do this thing whether you want to or not because so much depends on it and so many people depend on it. Yeah, that that's part of the commitment of being a touring musician is 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 saying yeah I will do that even if I'm not particularly in the mood that particular evening. I'll, I'll share with you a quick story. This is, uh, you know, and I, I, I know Paul Simon would laugh about this too. It was uh, uh, during the Graceland years. And the all South African aspect of the, of the support band had kind of shifted a little bit where he was kind of mixing in. I mean, Paul would do this. He would use his tours as a way of evolving and experimenting with his support group. Um, he had Michael Brecker come in. And Steve Gadd came in. So some of the best of the best of the New York scene were being woven in together with South African artists and supporting both the Graceland and the music he was doing from Rhythm of the Saints, which was the great follow-up album that didn't do nearly as well uh, commercially, but which is musically unbelievable. Rhythm of the Saints. <laughs> um, and, and Michael Brecker, though, of course, you know, he's a jazz player. And so, yes, he might have a schedule, but you never know when you're playing jazz what the gig's going to be like. And there's that excitement and that surprise and the expectation that something different's going to happen. Not with Paul. Paul likes to have everything down and true and the way it was yesterday and on Tuesday last week, etc. And Michael knew I was a kind of jazz guy, and I'd be on the side of the stage when he would come off after a certain part of the show, and he'd look at me and he'd go, same as last night. <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation, and these memories have evoked so much interesting thought here about the concept of touring and musicians and 
what that's all about for musicians, their spouses, their audience. And uh, so, Ashley Kahn, thanks so much for being our guest today and Thank conversing you. with us here on uh, Lifetimes of Listening. We really uh, appreciate having had this time with you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for being with us today on Lifetimes of Listening. This is going to be our last episode for season one, and we're going to take a few months to gather some more interviews, set up some more guests, and plan for season two. But meanwhile, consider catching up on our older episodes, and please follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll also consider participating with our project by telling us your story. And Brian, as we mentioned, every episode, we're really grateful for the more than, it says here, 160, I think we're closing in on 180 people I close, think, yes, close yes, to that, sorry. who have been kind enough to share with us and allow us to record a story, a musical memory of theirs for inclusion in our Arizona Musical Memory Archive. It's allowing us to better understand the ways that people value music and why music is so important in their lives. If you haven't yet done so, visit our website at musicalmemories.music.arizona. Edu. There, at the website, you'll find the full-length interviews of the ones that we've posted here. You can also submit a musical memory of your own via sound file, an essay, a poem, or an illustration um, on the website. You can also suggest to people that you'd like us to, to seek out their musical memories. So please take a look at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. Thanks for being with us here on Lifetimes of Listening. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the University of Arizona School of Music and the UA College of Fine Arts for their continued support of the Lifetimes of Listening Musical Memory Archive and this podcast. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. 